Well, the FDA jury is out on treatment for uterine fibroids, and it's not favorable to the practice of laparoscopic power morselation. That update and more, importantly, the practitioner's perspectives on those recommendations is the focus of our discussion here today. You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me at Omnia Education's Women's Health Annual Visit in New York is Dr. Michael Randell, a practicing OBGYN in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northside Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. He's also a diplomat at the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the National Board of Medical Examiners. Dr. Randell, welcome to the program today. Thank you for having me. So to start, let's talk about the procedure and technology themselves. Um, give us a quick review of what's involved in power morselation. Well, power morselation is the procedure in which we can take large things out of small holes. So with laparoscopy, we're making small incisions in a patient's abdomen to perform a certain procedure. In this case, we're talking about hysterectomy and myomectomy. Myomectomy is removing the fibroid from the uterus. Mm -hmm. Now, once you've done that through small holes, then you have to remove the tissue out of the patient. And in order to accomplish that also through a minimally invasive technique, you would have to cut the pieces of tissue and pull them out of the abdomen. Mm -hmm. And a power morselator is that surgical device that allows us to do that, to remove both the uterus or the fibroid. Um, and how and when did the controversies with this procedure start to get picked up or noticed? Earlier this year, there were reports out of Boston where a physician was diagnosed with leiomyosarcoma after a hysterectomy, and she had had power morselation performed. And we know with power morselation, the tissue that we remove, cells can break off, and if you have cancer, the cancer could spread throughout your body and worsen your odds of long-term survival. So as a result of that, there was a lot of publicity, including the FDA getting involved, and the FDA has made several statements over the last several months regarding this, and individual physicians as well as uh, hospitals have taken positions as to how we're going to be using power morselation within our practice and what we're going to offer to our patients. Do you think that the fact that the patient case in this scenario or this instance was also a physician um, lent that much more credence to the public outcry? I think so. It, it took on its a life of its own. And as a result of that, whenever you have a controversial area, and especially when it's affecting patients and it's affecting women, and there's some concern about the technique that's being performed, uh, there's going to be some criticism and investigation. And you know, I have to say, I've been doing this for now 19 years. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm fortunate. I've never had a case of leiomyosarcoma. Mm -hmm. It's always been in the back of my mind that that could be a possibility. But I guess I've been prudent in finding the right patient to operate on. In other words, there are certain groups, certain patient population demographic where you would not want to use a power morselator. And that's even keeping with what the FDA is telling us now, that they are not banning the use of the morselator. They're just saying that we should be very, very cognizant of those patients where it would be in a higher likelihood of having a leiomyosarcoma. And these are perimenopausal patients or even postmenopausal patients. But a young woman, reproductive years, who's had a fibroid, let's say, for 10 years, the likelihood of her having an undiagnosed cancer like a leiomyosarcoma is extremely low. And it's not to say that if we were to open these patients in order to avoid using power morselation, that that wouldn't contribute to other possibilities. Because we know open surgery carries risks. Infection, wound infections, for example, longer recovery time. Uh, patients can have clots in their legs, develop pulmonary embolus. So there are risks of everything we do. We have to weigh those risks. So I think the harm with what the FDA is stating and now 
how people are interpreting what the FDA is stating is that we're going to abandon laparoscopic surgery perhaps for these patients and end up doing more open procedures. And definitely open procedures carries risks as well. So the baby out with the bathwater is what you're hearing here. Absolutely. What about the prevalence of uterine sarcomas? I mean, in general, just to give us a reiterate, you you had not seen any masked sarcomas uh, within power marcellation procedures that you've done. You're saying it's a very, very low risk, it seems, uh, of uncovering one. But what is the overall prevalence of, of this disease process? Yeah, that, that's what was surprising when the FDA looked at it and they analyzed it and there's been other reports is the number is about 1 in 350 mm-hmm. of an undiagnosed lyomyosarcoma. And with that number, uh, that's alarming. However, when you talk to most practitioners out there, they'll all say, well, I haven't seen it. And it could be that they haven't seen it because of the fact that they've also been prudent in knowing that if you, you wouldn't want to morselate somebody who had a rapidly growing uterus who is postmenopausal, for example. So you really have to be very careful in selecting the patient who would be a candidate for that procedure. And I think also what's important is that if you can avoid using power morselation, you probably should. In other words, if you're doing a hysterectomy and that uterus can be delivered through the vagina, you don't need a power morselator. You just bring it out through a natural body orifice. Challenges with the myomectomy. And the myomectomy is removing the fibroids, so you don't have the opening of the vagina in that regard. So you do have to remove it through some type of morselation procedure. I have innovated my own techniques uh, to, because our hospital has recently suspended the use of the morselator. So I feel that it would be wrong for me to now abandon the procedure itself that is minimally invasive myomectomies or hysterectomies. And I have sort of developed my own techniques to be able to bring the specimen in a bag, bring the bag up through small incisions, and then morselate externally through hand morselation with other instruments and not using the power Right, and I definitely want to touch on that. But I'm interested then in this process of risk that people are talking about with regards to the um, dissemination of potential cancer tissue. Is it because of this grinding action of a morselator? Is, is the risk still there for other types of cutting. Um, you know, you mentioned um, being able to bring uterine tissue through uh, an existing cavity. Is there still a risk there if you're uncovering a, a hidden or masked um, uterine sarcoma of, of having the same issue? And we believe that that may be the case, but like anything, we need to have the evidence. And it's very hard to study that and know for sure, but we believe that, yes, when you disrupt tissue, there's a likelihood for those cells to disseminate as you had described. That does not mean that even a patient who doesn't have a morselated operation is not at risk for succumbing to their cancer. So if you have a patient with leiomyosarcoma and she has an open procedure, she is still at risk just by the nature of having an aggressive tumor like leiomyosarcoma. The belief is that with morselation, we are perhaps affecting that by disseminating those cells and as a result, disseminating disease, and then she's going to succumb to that cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, there's, even the options that we have may not be completely protective. So I think you have to really put it in a risk reduction to minimize the risk of having those cells disseminate. That's the whole idea. And that's why there's been reports of morselating in a bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, what really needs to happen are two things. One is technology needs to be able to help us diagnose these cancers prior to surgery. We don't have the technology. MRIs, CT scans, no blood tests that helps us to identify it. Number two, we have to innovate with equipment, and the equipment would be protecting the organ that we are morselating, putting in a bag, making that safe, and making that feasible, and not too uh, difficult to perform. 
So we have a lot of challenges, and there are companies working on different products because I think we all have the same mission, and that is to really promote and advance minimally invasive surgery, at the same time not put our patients at risk, and not to worry our patients. I mean, this, this topic has taken a life of its own. It has been in the media, the lay press, Dr. Oz, and patients are coming in specifically with a lot of questions as to what I'm going to do for her during that surgery. And I have a more set on my desk. I've always explained it. I put things into perspective. And patients are well-informed these days. And as a result of that, physicians need to be well-informed. And we shouldn't just, hey, put it all down and say, we're going to open you, because that's not necessarily the best for the patient. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm joined by Dr. Michael Randell from Northside Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. So, Dr. Randell, let's turn back to the FDA. So they made a, quote-unquote, recommendation, not an outright ban. Why did they go with the recommendation? And in your opinion, does that make any difference? Is this essentially um, the persona non grata of procedures now? Well, the issue is, to even clarify what you said in terms of a recommendation, it's suggested recommendation ah. is, the, is the way they worded it. And it's a suggested recommendation really to the user, that is the physician, as well as the manufacturer of morselator devices in terms of putting a black box warning in the product itself. Uh, we know that one company, uh, many several months ago, actually stopped worldwide production of the Morselator. We still have other companies producing the product. And whether or not the companies adopt that, that's up to their own discretion because, again, it's a recommended precaution, if you will, and, and black box warning. Uh, the FDA announcement really has to deal with patients should be informed, physicians should avoid using it if you can, and if you do use it, make sure you use it in that population of patients that we know it's low risk, and that would be the young woman who has a fibroid, for example, where the likelihood of her having an undiagnosed leiomyosarcoma is extremely low. Well, let's talk about that risk element because there's another factor here which seems to come into play, which is potential legal ramification risk. Now that the FDA has made this quote-unquote suggested recommendation, um, a number of physicians out there are saying, yeah, nobody can do this anymore. I mean, you said, you, you said your own hospital has taken it off uh, the list of, of procedures to do. What is the recourse for uh, physicians who are thinking they still want to, they've, they've known this procedure, they, they're looking at the risks a little bit differently, and they still want to proceed? Can they feel confident doing that? It's an excellent question, and it gets down to the point that we need to educate our patients and obtain proper informed consent. And informed consent is not just a paper you sign, it's a process by which patients understand the options. They have to understand the indications for a laparoscopic procedure, including morselation. They have to understand the contraindications. They have to understand the indications for an open procedure. They have to understand the, you know, the risk for an open procedure. And once a patient has weighed the risks and the benefits of all her options and she comes to a conclusion, you know, that's probably supportive. That means that the patient has made the decision for one reason or the other and based on the totality of the circumstance that the patient has decided that she wants to proceed. Again, putting into perspective, it would probably be wrong to do that in a patient who is postmenopausal, who has a large uterus that's rapidly growing. That it would be a physician not being prudent and recognizing it, regardless of what the consent process was, that he probably shouldn't even offer her that procedure. Mm -hmm. But a woman within the group that the FDA said it's acceptable to use it in, younger patients who have a fibroid, perhaps needs a hysterectomy or a myomectomy, once she understands that there is a risk and it proper informed consent is obtained, I think that does protect the patient. Of course, we're always concerned about the lawyers, but we're always concerned about the patient as well. It means nothing to me to have a problem that develops if the patient hasn't had a good outcome. Outcomes are what's important. But again, we can have bad outcomes even if we do the right thing. 
even in a case where we abandon the use of the morselator, we abandon the use of laparoscopy, and open a patient, bad things can happen in that regard as well. Right. Patients have to understand that. There are right. risks. And patients may not want to have that six-week recovery and the pain associated with open procedures. So do you see your own practice changing in the coming months or years? It's already clearly changed, at least indirectly, because of um, what your associated hospital is starting to move in on. But how do you see your own practice changing now? Well, it's interesting because the week that the announcement came out from the FDA, I was interviewed in the Wall Street Journal, and I had mentioned that I don't think it would affect my practice at all because I have a much younger population trying to preserve their fertility. Uh, They have fibroids. They've had these fibroids for years the likelihood of somebody who has fibroids for years to have a lyomyosarcoma is extremely, extremely small. So I felt it wouldn't affect me at all, and I am probably one of the busiest morselator users in the, in the country, have a lot of experience with it, and I'm, I didn't think it would affect me. And then a few days later, the hospital decided they were going to do a temporary suspension of the morselator, which I understand the reasons, uh, and it's just led to an opportunity to innovate. So I'm still doing the operation, I'm protecting the tissue, and I'm doing really a more external morselation. So I'm not using power morselator. There's zero risk of the cells being disseminated in my patients. And I am really pulling out the tissue from the patient's abdomen through small holes while in a bag, while it's being protected. So uh, patients are definitely still interested, and it's being explained to them. And I have had, you know, it's interesting, I had patients that were already consented for their operation when the morselator was still being used in the hospital, mm. and then I had to tell patients after the fact that I can't use it, and then I had to go through the whole explanation of what we're going to do. And to be honest, I'm talking about, you know, that you're, you're not necessarily an experiment, but uh, we know how to do the operation. It's just removing the tissue can be a challenge, and with the experience that one brings to an operating room, uh, that's what matters. And uh, we've been successful in the cases so far, and I will continue to do that until there's more innovation coming out, which... Um, thinking that there will be soon because mm-hmm. this is a process by which we use um, in ORs across the country every day and uh, it's been a big setback to not be able to have that instrument right and to think I may have to open patients when what I do is minimally invasive surgery right so despite uh, an apparent moratorium in your own setting you've sort of needed to change the lens by which you uh, continue on with this now it's a more experimental and you're looking at ways of potentially making it safer well, I want to use the word experimental because, you know, not You've to... been doing it for a long time. Right. The, the, the procedure is the same. It's how you remove the tissue from the patient and you know what's available to you and you take instruments and you say this will work and you try it and it works. Uh, at all times, the patient is, is safe because we're not going to put a patient at harm. There should be no reason to innovate to put the patient at more harm than she would have been had we used the original procedure, that being the power morselator. And as far as comparatively to open procedures... What is the comparative risk for that patient who's trying to preserve her fertility? Well, open procedures carries the risks associated with open operations, and that would include infections, wound infections, uh, the potential for longer hospitalization, immobility, development of uh, deep venous thrombosis, blood clots in the leg, and then pulmonary embolus. So open procedures carries risks that we don't necessarily see in laparoscopic procedures, so that's why we have to go back to weighing that risk. Uh, and most women would prefer a minimally invasive procedure to be able to return to normal activity soon, as well as to minimize the risk, the need for post-op medications. 
Uh, you know, this area of minimally invasive surgery has changed significantly over the last several years with the uh, advent of the robot, for example. The surgical robot has made it possible to do so many things now minimally invasively, and it's been a combination of other instrumentation, including the morselator that has allowed us to do the actual surgery minimally invasively and then use the morselator to remove the, the, the tissue from the patient. Um, been doing it for many, many years, have not had a problem. Uh, I don't anticipate ever having a problem at any point because I'm being very careful in the patients that I select for the operation, mm -hmm. uh, including using the techniques that we have, ultrasound, MRI. It's not completely able to diagnose the cancer, but there are some clues that we could sometimes use. And if ever I have a question or any doubt, that's not an option for a patient of a minimally invasive procedure. She'll need to have an open procedure. Yeah. So we have to be careful. But if the public outcry continues um, in the wake of this FDA recommendation, and let's say more companies providing the equipments decide, you know what, doesn't really make sense on our profit loss margins, um, do you anticipate there being that much more difficulty in being able to continue this, this practice? Oh, absolutely. If we don't have the devices to be able to do the procedure, then we're going to be limited by the resources available to our patients and to ourselves in the operation. And that's why I think we're going to have to abandon the power morselation, so devices that provide that technique, and resort to things like I'm talking about, being able to do things externally with other instruments. I'm using a bone-crushing instrument that's used in orthopedic surgery to remove fibroids, and it's being done manually. So the fibroid is protected in a bag, so nothing's going to get out of that bag. And I'm bringing it up to a small incision in the patient's abdomen, and the incision is the same incision that I used for my video camera to actually do the operation, so it's not an extra incision. And then using this clamp, I'm able to crush the tissue externally and bring the pieces out. Hmm. So it's tedious, it's very difficult, it hurts the hand, but at the end of the day, we're here for our patients, and the patient has a great outcome, and she gets back onto her, you know, her routine quite quickly and out of the hospital as an outpatient procedure. Well, with that, I very much want to thank Dr. Michael Randell for his time and insights on the controversies of power morselation for uterine fibroids. For access to this and other important interviews in women's health, please visit ReachMD.com. This is Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thank you, as always, for listening.